Well, good morning. Before I uh, get started, I thought I would share something that um, uh, my wife reposted on Facebook, uh, kind of a poster that says, Today is the Super Bowl, and as a Christian, you should be as excited for church as you are for the game. Well, that sounds good. I like that sentiment. The second part I have a problem with, however. Therefore, whenever the pastor makes a point, pour Gatorade over his head. Please, please don't do that, okay? No matter how inspired you might become, please don't do that. You know, I've been wearing my glasses since uh, my late 20s, and I, I don't need them legally to drive, but I wear them a lot. And I've noticed as I've gotten older, and as my eyesight has uh, not improved, that I tend to really need them when I drive, especially at night or when there's uh, bad weather or a glare of some kind. So my glasses are pretty important to me. And there have been a couple times over the years where they've been damaged or broken, which is not unusual. When you have glasses, eventually something's going to happen. A lens pops out or maybe a screw in the frame comes loose. But recently, or maybe the last year or so, I, I had the worst damage. I, I snapped this arm here um, about halfway off. And so until they were fixed for a couple of days, I had to walk around kind of looking goofy. You know, for this side, so I kind of walk like this, so nobody would notice that, you know, well, why are you turned like this? Because, because it just looks so awful. But, but things happen. Things break, don't they, in our world? Material things, dishes break, glasses break, bigger things, more valuable things. Cars break down, elevators break down. Um, and it's not just those sorts of things, but also our bodies break down at times, right? I remember when I was 19 years old, I was shingling a board gave way. I did a header onto a concrete driveway, broke my wrist. The rest of me was okay, but I broke my wrist. Things break. Even relationships, don't they, as we know uh, too painfully. We are fragile creatures. We live in a world with lots of broken things and things that break. Life is rough at times, to say the least. And surviving it is something that we cannot take for granted, can we? For the past few weeks, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, and it's a, a powerful chapter. One of my favorite passages in all the scripture is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in Rome during the time of, of some persecution, and he was instructing them. And, and this passage was not only relevant for them, but it's relevant for us today as we sit here in, in the year 2016 in Salina, Kansas. Ray Ortland Jr. says this about the Romans. It has the potential to transform the church in our generation as it has in the past. Another man says this about it. He says, if the epistle to the Romans rightly has been called the cathedral of Christian faith, then surely the eighth chapter may be regarded as its most sacred shrine or its high altar of worship, of praise and of prayer. Here in chapter eight, we stand in the full liberty of the children of God and enjoy a prospect of that glory of God, which someday we are to share. So over these past several weeks, as we've been working our way through our sermon series, Great Eight, we've been seeing from the book of Romans what we have in Jesus Christ. Paul begins the chapter by saying, if you are in Jesus Christ, he says, there is no longer any condemnation for you. There is absolutely none. He goes on to say in the next verses, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are now indwelt by God's Holy Spirit who fills you and guides you and directs you and convicts you and assures you empowers you, comforts you. The next thing Paul addresses in this chapter is if we are in Jesus Christ, that we are now adopted as sons and daughters. We are his children. And that God doesn't just forgive us, but he also brings us into a family, which is 
Even better news than being forgiven, really. As J.I. Packer says, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. And then finally, working his way through this chapter, Paul tells us that we are heirs with Christ. That we will inherit every promise that God has made regarding his people. All this is good news, right? It's, it's, it's great news. It's incredible. But there's a problem. We can understand we're forgiven. We can understand that God's spirit <laughs> dwells within us. We can understand that we are adopted as his children. We can understand that we are heirs. And still feel that in this life, we're at risk. That we're fragile. That bad things can happen. That we're breakable. And that God's control over, over, over our lives and our world is fragile too. If there's one thing I've learned over 25 years of pastoral ministry, it's that life is tough. And that we will face difficult situations, events, tragedies, things that we can't, can't completely comprehend or understand or make sense of. That everything in life is breakable. Paul even alludes to this again in chapter 8, in verses 18 through 25, because he talks about our, our present sufferings. In a, in a sense, he's saying things are going to be tough. Sometimes things will break in your lives. And so in the last part of the chapter, he then begins to drill down onto something that we can rely upon, that we know is not breakable, that is field tested, that will survive whatever life sends our way, whether it's layoffs or breakups or crises, illnesses, even death. He says there are two things that will never, ever break, no matter what happens in the life of a believer. And those two things are this. God's purpose for us as his children and God's love for us as his children. Now, last week we looked at the, the passage, three short verses, Romans 8, 28 through 31. And in that passage, we focused on God's purpose for our lives and in our lives. We, we talked about what that means. We talked about what that doesn't mean. And we talked about the perspective that it can give us as we go through life. It's really important for us to understand. So for those of you who maybe weren't with us last week and for those of you who were, I'm going to spend a few minutes in this message to, to, to drill into it because it's really tied into the second unbreakable thing, which is God's love for us. So first, God's purpose for his people, they're unbreakable. And we know, Romans 8:28 that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is a great verse. I love this verse, but sometimes, I've got to be frank, it can be hard to hear. It can be hard to believe. When, when something really awful happens in our world, or happens to us, or someone we love, someone that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, you can't find a reason behind it, you can't see any good that can come out of it, this can be a hard verse to hear. So we have to be careful about throwing it around indiscriminately. But here's what Paul is saying, that God has an ultimate purpose in our lives. And that purpose is that we will, over time, and ultimately be shaped into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. All the things about ourselves that we don't like, all our faults and struggles, all the things we want to change but we can't, all those things, eventually, God will work in our lives to bring about a Christ-likeness. 
a change in our lives. That's God's purpose for us as his children. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Ray Ortland Jr. says it's like looking at an artist's magnum opus. You know, his, his life's work, a great work. God has begun this work in us. And what God begins, God always finishes. His purpose in your life will not be defeated. You are, in a sense, all of us are, in a sense, God's personal project. God's love will even work to employ the worst things in our lives for his loving purpose. doesn't say he causes those things. doesn't say he wants those things to happen. But he will work in those things to bring about his ultimate purpose. Our sins, even the evil and tragedy in our world. God will work through those things and in those things to bring about redemption. It's called the providence of God. Now, what does this look like? It's nice to talk about, but... It's hard to get our minds around at times. The best, one of the best illustrations I've, I've seen about this comes from the author Philip Yancey. I'm going to read a passage from one of his books. It's a little bit long, but stick with me because I think it's really, it's been helpful to me anyway. He writes, in high school, I took pride in my ability to play chess. I joined a chess club and during lunch hour <laughs> could be found sitting at a table with other nerds pouring over books with titles like classic king pawn openings. I studied techniques, won most of my matches and put the game aside for 20 years. Then in Chicago, I met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. When we played a few matches, I learned what it was like to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. Although I had complete freedom to make any move I wished, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered much. His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably ended up serving his own. He continues, perhaps God engages our universe, his own creation in much the same way. He grants us freedom, free will to rebel against its original design. But even as we do so, we end up ironically serving his eventual goal of restoration. Then he concludes, if I accept that blueprint, A huge step of faith, I confess. It transforms how I view both good and bad things that happen. Good things, such as health, talent, money, opportunities, I can present to God as offerings to serve his purposes. And bad things, too. Disability, poverty, family dysfunction, failure, can be redeemed as the very instruments that drive me to God. This is one of the best illustrations that I've found regarding God's providence and how he works in our lives. But the best illustration is found in the scripture. It's found in the story of the cross. On Good Friday, we remember that Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was illegally convicted, that he was mocked, that he was beaten, that he was crucified, that he was killed. It was the most horrible thing that has ever happened. Human beings killing the son of God who came to love them and to save them and to show them the way. But in the ultimate example of God working all in all things together for our good, he took this most horrible of events and he turned it into the most wonderful thing in history. Jesus' death becomes our salvation. So in the end, if we have trusted in what Jesus Christ did at the cross to accomplish our failed salvation, that in the end we will be made glorious and transformed 
and made like Jesus Christ. John Donne, maybe you recognize the name, an English poet who lived almost 500 years ago, put it this way, I shall be so like God as that the devil himself shall not know me from God. So far as to find any more place to fasten a temptation upon me than upon God, not to conceive any more hope of my falling from that kingdom than of God's being driven (laughs) out of it. So God's purpose for us is unbreakable. What he starts in our lives, he will bring to completion. But that's not all. God's love for us is also unbreakable. In his book, By Grace Alone, Sinclair Ferguson identifies four major, what he calls, fiery darts that Satan uses to to unsettle believers and to rob them of assurance and peace. Fiery dart number one. God is against you, Satan says. He's not really for you. How can you believe he's for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Fiery dart number two. I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. Fiery dart three. You can say you are forgiven, but there is a payback day coming, a day of judgment and condemnation, Satan insinuates. How will you defend yourself then? Fiery dart number four. Given your track record, your inability to change, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? Will any of these things remove us from God's love for us? Is God's love for us so fragile? Paul answers assertively and powerfully in verses 31 through 39. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, I've told this this true story before, but it's so powerful and one of my favorites, and I've got the microphone, so I'm going to tell it again. It really illustrates God's love for us as his people. When he was growing up, the late author Brennan Manning had a best friend named Ray, and the two of them did everything together, bought a car together, double dated as teenagers, went to school together, they enlisted in the army They went to boot camp together. They fought on the front lines together. And one night, while sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while his friend Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole. Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray loved me? Ray's mother got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of his face, and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said at that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus Christ and wondering, "Does, Does God really love me? Can he really love me? And the answer coming back, what more could I have done for you? The cross of Jesus Christ is God's definitive way of doing all he could do for us. It's the evidence of God being for us in the giving of his son. 
And now that he's given us this greatest gift of all, he will surely give us everything else that we need. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect or chosen? (coughs) It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, there are a lot of not so positive things or negative things or bad things that people can say about us as individuals, right? Anyone who knows me well could stand up here and deliver charges against me, faults in my character, things I should have done that I haven't, things I did do that I wish I hadn't, things that I've said or done, things that I've valued too much that really aren't important, so on and so forth. And all these charges, I must confess, would be true. But in regard to my relationship with God and whether or not I'm condemned and whether or not I'm loved, none of these charges would stick. If accusations are brought against us, we need not fear for the the charges are silenced by the upraised, pierced hands of Jesus Christ, who is our intercessor. If we are to be condemned, it will have to be over Christ's dead and and resurrected body, which really is the source and the basis and the, the foundation, the guarantee of our salvation. Romans 8 says that no charge will stick against us. Why? Because God dealt with them all on Good Friday on the cross. And he has declared us not guilty. No one will condemn us on the day of judgment when we put our trust in Jesus. And not only will God not condemn us, but even more so, Jesus himself will defend us. He'll argue for us. He'll defend us against any charge. Finally, nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress <coughs> or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So at the end of this chapter, Paul looks around at anything and everything that could potentially, possibly separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. He throws out every worst case scenario that could threaten God's love. He says death will not pull you away from God's love. Neither will anything else in life, nor any sort of cosmic spiritual power, nothing in time, no disappointment, no neurosis, no disease, No financial crisis, no broken romance, no mental illness, no moral failure will be able to separate you as God's child from the love of God that is expressed to us through Christ Jesus. God's love for you has no limits. You know, just like these glasses, there's very little in life that is unbreakable. Everything around us is fragile. But the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean that two things are true. God's purpose for you as his child is unbreakable. What he starts, he'll finish. 
in God's love for you is unbreakable. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And it's a very visible illustration of God's unconditional, unbelievable, unbreakable love for us. It also points to the cross where, where God took the worst possible scenario, the death of his son, and how he worked through it and in it to bring the best possible outcome for us, salvation and hope and peace and joy and grace and mercy. And so in a moment as we take communion, do it believing that despite Satan's accusations, despite the voices around you, despite your own flaws and failures, despite the voices in your head that condemn you, take communion believing that we who have trusted in Jesus are forgiven, are redeemed, and we are loved. And that that love of God for us is unbreakable. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for how you inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to the Christians in Rome, but also to us here in Salina, Kansas today. I pray, Lord, that we, as we look at our world with so much brokenness, expressed in so many ways, <coughs> that we would never doubt that your purpose for us is unbreakable, that it will be done, that what you start, you'll finish, but that also your love for us is unbreakable and that nothing will separate us from that love. So Lord, now as we come to communion, we come so, we come <coughs> gratefully, we come humbly, and Lord, we come also confidently, not taking your purpose and your love for granted, but we come confidently because it doesn't depend upon how good we are, but rather it depends upon how good Jesus Christ was and is. We thank you for his faithfulness. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.